Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the father of lies, how many Christians have allowed themselves to become his tool, and whether it's high time we ask Christianity to give up deceitfulness for Lent. I chose the word deceitfulness very carefully there, but I'm going to stop being careful for a little bit here and just allow myself to mix terms. So if I use a phrase like lying, let's not get all legalistic and technical and split hairs over you know, little white lies versus big fat lies. The notion of self-deceptiveness versus a true outright deception, let's not kid ourselves here. When something is being said that's untrue, when it's being said and preached as if it were not only truth but absolute truth, the higher the standard of truth, the greater the measure has to be applied against it. And it's not hard for me to find examples where Christians have, you know, frankly, out and out lied. And there's no reason for me to delay hitting this topic in this manner any further. I've talked about it on inappropriate conversations in the past. There are some titles of previous shows which sort of give it away, but I would even cite by number just a few to give you a hint that there back, there's background material here, I've talked about this before in episodes 20, 30, 36, 72, 84, recently in 106, and that's not the only one I've hit recently. This notion of Christians deceiving people or telling lies. And rather than waiting a few more days and seeing if current events will catch up to me, the reality is I'm sort of hoping and praying that current events will stop catching up to me. Just today... As a matter of fact, I saw this article on the Huffington Post from Kevin Shikovsky. It starts this way. The American Family Association attacked NFL player Tim Tebow for canceling an appearance at an anti-gay church, claiming that he caved to liberal media and lost his street cred. Readers, in turn, slammed the conservative group for its response. It all started when news surfaced on February 14th that Tebow was scheduled to speak in April at First Baptist Church in Dallas, a Texas megachurch led by senior pastor Robert Jeffress and known for his anti-gay, anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic reference. An uproar ensued, and Tebow announced on February 21st that he had canceled the appearance due to, quote, new information, end quote, brought to his attention. After the Jets player nixed the gig, the AFA took to its One News Now website and Twitter with hashtag Tebow Caves to bash Tebow for ostensibly crumbling under media pressure. This comes from reports by David Badish from the New Civil Rights Movement. But readers began criticizing the AFA's argument, and the group allegedly took the piece down and refocused it. This is not the first example of religious right conservatives misunderstanding the way the Internet works and how to function in a, in a specifically in a Twitter era. I recall the blow-up with the Susan G. Komen Foundation and Planned Parenthood, where somebody that they had hired to represent them had championed their decision to disenfranchise themselves from Planned Parenthood and had put tweets that made it very clear that the decision was absolutely and, and unmistakably political. Yeah, you take the tweets down, but anybody who does a screen capture from their computer will know what the tweet said in the first place. Again, the Internet is on some levels sort of permanent, and it's very hard to distance yourself from things that you might have put online. And here's another example where the American Family Association took a strident anti-Tebow perspective and had since softened their view. Having heard from their own constituencies, not really interested in what people in the center of American political and religious thought think, much less the left, but having heard from people who are bigger Tebow fans, perhaps, than American Family Association fans, took the tweet down, put up a different tweet, and for a while acted as if this has been their opinion all along, insinuating that in some ways their point of view hadn't changed. It is a lie to put out one idea, then change it to a different idea and then say that you never had the original thought. In other words, on some level, a flip-flop is far more honest 
if the flip-flop respects a change in perspective, shows a growth, uh, as Thibaut describes it, taking on additional information, things that hadn't been thought through or understood or maybe not even known at the time. And in this case, the American Family Association's proper response would have been to say, hey, we didn't realize that you know, this individual's faith testimony was that important to a lot of American Christians, and therefore, we are no longer going to take a straightened anti-Tebow position on the fact that we really wish that he would speak at this anti-gay church. Of course, the question then for me becomes, not only were they lying about their point of view about Tebow from beginning to current, but to what sense does it make sense to say that it's a persecution for somebody to elect not to speak in a public forum? You know, in other words, if the government or if the church or if fans of the church stop Tebow from appearing, well, that's a certain form of censorship. That's a form of prior restraint that's, in my mind, unacceptable. But for him on his own to decide he doesn't want to speak to that congregation, or at least not he doesn't want to speak at this time to that congregation, well, that's not necessarily an act of censorship. Tebow being forced to do something against his will is what's offensive. And the American Family Association's perspective is, can we just do something to force him to do something against his will? And can we manage the public relations problem in such a way that people won't know that we're coercing someone to speak against his will? So when you look at the way the Twitter and the PR issues were handled by Komen, the way it's being handled now by the American Family Association, ironically, a group that actually doesn't care at all what people think uh, outside of a very narrow band of religious right Christians, you begin to get the idea of what I mean by lies. There are other examples, and I don't even have to go back more than six to eight months. Let's go back to August 1st. And basically what I experienced on August 1st was a group of Christians online with whom I would willfully and intentionally interact discussing some of the controversy related to the Chick-fil-A situation. Tell me that Jesus commands us to hate. Now, this is probably available again in the interest of full disclosure. These conversations are online. And this one I believe was on Facebook. So I'm not changing what was said behind people's back. I'm not altering the truth to make myself look good or make someone else look bad. This was a dialogue between one Christian and another Christian where that Christian was convinced, passionately convinced, that this was the time to stand up and snuff out some sort of enemy in our midst. And that the, the reason that the anger that was being expressed, the vitriol, the hatred could be defended was that it was biblical, that Jesus tells us to hate. My answer was to say, well, I need chapter and verse on that. Because I'm quite certain that Jesus didn't contradict himself in the Sermon on the Mount. And what he had to say in the Sermon on the Mount was crystal clear. Fair warning for people who prefer that I not go into too much scripture. This is going to be an episode where I go into a great deal of scripture. And I will cite that segment of the Sermon on the Mount today later as an example. I would just encourage you, if you come to this from a non-Christian perspective, to hang in. Because as someone who is perhaps completely secular in their worldview and feeling threatened and aggravated by some of this dialogue and rhetoric we're hearing from the religious right, I'm on your side as far as that goes. Uh, my point of view about inappropriate behavior from the religious right has nothing to do with my faith in Christ. In fact, I'm quite certain that Christ would also share. Well, he doesn't want people putting words in his mouth, especially words that contradict everything he ever taught and said and stood for. No, hang around for the scripture. If nothing else, you may find it to be equipping. It's nice to know that there are passages, there's chapters and verses that can be shared when Christians are caught in these kinds of lies. And I will share them that specifically. No, I, I called the bluff and I said, hey, I am quite certain that Jesus doesn't tell us to hate, but if you think he does, chapter and verse, please. And when that happens, sometimes you get no response at all. Sometimes the person disappears for an hour or so and comes back with an answer. And sometimes the person knows the answer right off the top of their head. And the answer I got was Old Testament. Proverbs, as a matter of fact. And I don't know how I responded. I may have decided to just back off and let other friends speak for me to have a variety of voices on this issue. But truthfully, Proverbs do not offer us a list of commandments. They are proverbial statements. They are old sayings. They're closer to recommendations than dogma. They do not come from the Pentateuch. They're not the Jewish Torah. They are not laws in any sense of the word. And they give good advice. You, you, you would hate what's evil. We should resist at all, at all times to uh, any temptation to sin. Of course, most of those Proverbs speak of things that you should be doing in your own personal life and in your own personal walk. 
the closest it gets to saying anything related to how important it is to hate other people is saying that there are people that you should definitely avoid because of the sin that they've maintained in your life and your attitude toward your own sinfulness and temptation. You might want to keep things separated. Of course, that's a very different example from Jesus who walked right into situations that the religious leaders of his day would have found unacceptable because he was dealing directly with people who were sinful, who were broken, who were fallen, who were hurting, who were making huge mistakes. So you got to reconcile that. And I reconcile it with a, the difference between a New Testament perspective versus an Old Testament perspective, which is why I ask people to tell me what Jesus says. But make no mistake, when a Christian tells you that Jesus has told them to hate, when a Christian tells you that the Holy Spirit has led them to do destructive, damaging, hateful things, they are lying. They are lying, and they are following the influence not of God, but of the Father of all lies. We'll get into some detail about who that is later. So, God may want you to vote. There seems to be evidence in Scripture that God is somewhat indifferent to whether we vote, but God certainly doesn't command us to vote Republican. And yet, not long after August, certainly in the conventions that happened late August and September, and definitely the closer we got to the November elections, you would hear this a lot. God wants you to vote Republican. God wants you to vote pro-life. Once again, time to look into Scripture. Time to ask for chapter and verse. And we're probably going to find that that's a lie too. Also, the lie that birth control is just another form of abortion. If you visited the Inappropriate Conversations page, the cause for Inappropriate Conversations on Facebook, I post links from time to time about issues that you know, reflect the ideas of the politics, sex, and religion conversation that has to be happening in our culture and is not well enough. I feel like there's a little bit more dialogue than there has been uh, when a pope retires, which is unprecedented in our lifetime, unprecedented in our centuries. You're going to get some dialogue about things related to Christianity and child sex abuse scandals. And if we have to resist the temptation where people say, well, we, we can't talk about that, that's too ugly. I actually think that when this kind of abuse is happening, the ugliest thing we can do is to brush it under the rug, bury it, pretend it didn't happen. If some sort of cover-up is going on, of a sort that would probably lead a lot of Americans to say that if the president were covering up these kinds of crimes from people who worked for him, that we would, we would probably seek impeachment. We certainly wouldn't be you know, casual about it. We certainly wouldn't be saying that we shouldn't be discussing it, in other words. So it's a lie to say, let's bury those things. I've put some posts online that speak to the difference between what happens in a birth control situation and what happens in either abortion or in the morning after pill. And... It's a lie to lump those things into the same bucket with one another, and it's a scriptural lie to say that Jesus has a point of view that this sort of hormonal birth control is evil, wrong, it must be condemned, it's unacceptable, when, as I've mentioned before in birth control episode of Inappropriate Conversations, there's a great deal of scriptural evidence to suggest that Jesus has actually performed this kind of hormonal medical care in what we would call as humans a healing what is the nature of that healing? How would we, in our you know, fallible human ways, imitate to the best of our ability that kind of medical care, that same kind of healing? And the answer might just be the administration of, of hormonal birth control. So that's a big lie. Obviously, gay rights is a huge lie that we're dealing with today. And I have asked a question. I've been asking it a lot lately from any time I find myself in what I consider to be a Christian circle. And it's this. If this concept of gay marriage is a threat to your marriage, then let's go ahead and sign a contract. Let's put, let's put pen to paper. Let's make a promise that we can keep that says if the state we're living in passes this law, you will get divorced within four weeks. Let's say it takes four weeks to go through the necessary paperwork, to hire some sort of attorney, to file you know, documents with the state, that at the very least within four weeks that process will be well underway. Because if you're right about saying that any sort of legal recognition of a relationship between two people, a relationship that's happening, whether the state wants it to or not, but that legal recognition, if that one step is a threat to marriage, then it's got to be a threat to your marriage. And you probably need to explain to me how it's a threat to your marriage. Because if you can't explain that, then I'm going to assume that the threat is so dire, so dark, so disturbing, so dangerous, and so deadly that it cannot even be articulated, and therefore your divorce must be imminent. 
how in the world could you possibly remain married, even for one month after a law like that passed? Unless what you're saying is that there is no such thing as a threat to your marriage, but this is a threat to other people's marriages. That sort of lie. The lie that says that the existence of PG-13 and R-rated movies is a threat to children, not to your children. You're a good parent. You're not going to let your, you know, preteen kids watch those films, but other parents will. Therefore, the government has to step in. It's irresponsible. And in some ways, it's a lie. I don't believe for one second that the people who say the most loudly, the married heterosexual people who say the most loudly that gay marriage is a threat to their marriage, believe it. There's one exception, of course. There are the latent homosexuals, the deeply closeted homosexuals, perhaps the lying-to-themselves type people who do believe that this would be a threat to their marriage because subconsciously they realize their marriage is some sort of sham, that they've told a lie to themselves, they've been telling a lie to their spouse for years, and that realizing that they no longer have to tell that lie would shine a light on their lives in such a way that they... They might find it impossible to resist responding, and therefore the marriage that they're currently in, loveless though it may be, could indeed be threatened. And are we as Christians really insisting that the world go along with these kinds of lies? It does seem that there's a lot of people within modern American Christianity who want homosexual people to pretend to be straight and to pretend to be married, even if those marriages are genuinely loveless or sexless, even if those marriages produce no children. Which, of course, flies in the face of the few answers I have gotten, you know, the, the notion that marriage is something that has to be uh, for procreative purposes. I was offered that theory not long ago, and my answer to it is we have a lot of people who are married who don't have kids. We have some who can't have kids. We have some who don't want to have kids. Are we denying marriage to a widow and a widower? who meet each other in their late 60s and decide that they do want to have another lifetime commitment, that both of their spouses, they, they lived up to the pledge of till death do us part, but now that both of them have been left in death by a spouse, that they're not allowed to get married because marriage is only for people who are under, say, 48, 49 years old. This flies in the face of one of my earliest inappropriate conversations on the topic of companionship marriage where I wasn't speaking from the perspective of some sort of liberal, hippy-dippy worldview. Most of that was quoting at length an evangelical Christian scholar named David R. Mace, who, with his wife, led numerous uh, marriage encounter, marriage counseling courses. And it was their idea to say, hey, people don't always get married for the reasons that we used to think they did. It isn't just about legitimizing childbirth. In many ways, the best marriages out there are companionship marriages. And the funny thing about it is that companionship is a gender-neutral idea. So what do we do with those people who tell lies about homosexuals, lies about the propensity to pedophilia and other sort of things, or even just lies about their own worldview, you know, unwilling to walk the walk about how immediately they will divorce their wife if their marriage is now somehow tainted by someone else's? I don't know what we do with that, except call out the lies when we see them. Yeah, one of the bigger lies is the, the umbrella idea that Christianity is under attack. If a company presumes that it's going to be a health care provider, which I'll grant it is a somewhat you know, basic notion, our society has morphed into this idea that didn't exist 100 years ago, that if you're a business, you will provide health care. And therefore, for health care to become in any way expanded to include techniques I don't believe in, then now I'm under attack. It'd be much like the notion of saying that if a Jehovah's Witness ran a company, that for that company to provide for any medical services that included blood transfusion or even certain medication would be an abomination. It would be betraying their faith and that their faith trumped anything else. The concepts are the same. The only difference is whether we're talking about a group of people that a lot of evangelical Christians view to be a cult or a group of people that evangelical Christians view to be the only faith that's permitted in this country, the only faith that's real, the only faith that's American. So how do I answer the challenge, first and foremost, not to call out people for being liars or being self-deceived without giving an answer to the question? And I think I want to start by referring to an article that I've seen online from another blogger. I saw the article by Kimberly Knight at pathios.com. Hosting conversation on faith is what the website's all about. And her blog is called Coming Out Christian, Conversations About Being Gay and Christian 
in America. And in this, she responds to a comment that she received on her website, essentially, among other things, saying this. I'm not going to waste time and effort writing an involved answer when I know it will simply be ignored. I will happily look up the verses if you're going to thoughtfully consider them. But something tells me you have no interest in doing so. Your bio says you were a pastor at some point, so I should not even have to be telling you any of this. Again, why do you insist on calling yourself a follower of Christ, a Christian, when you not only disregard but proudly and openly deny his teachings? It is truly mind-boggling. I will offer the notion that describing some of the things that Mo here, the commenter, is discussing as Christ's teachings is inherently a lie. If called upon for this list of chapters and verses, just like my friend online who said that Christ commands us to hate, he would come up with a lot of Old Testament chapters and verses. He might find a couple things he'd want to recite from Paul, but he's not going to find Christ. He's not going to find a red letter answer to the question. And that's exactly the kind of response that Knight wrote in her blog, quoting her. I sense that you are one who reads the Bible in a literal, factual way, but maybe inconsistently so. Please note that the language you are using points me toward a form of idolatry, the very type of blind, uncompassionate, single-minded reading of holy texts that Jesus spoke against, which ultimately contributed to his death. I call myself a Christian because Christ is my center, but as I often remind folks, my boundaries are permeable. I believe that Jesus is the Word. I do not regard as infallible or inerrant the collection of books written by men as they struggled to understand and articulate their relationship with that which cannot be understood. I believe the Bible is a holy rendering of faithfully inspired struggle to connect with God, but I do not, nor do many Christians, believe it is the word breathed directly from God, and I do not worship it as such. As a bit of an aside, what is interesting, but not really baffling, to me is how much time people spend obsessing over some odd drive to control other people's sexuality, and so little time worrying about other parts of the Bible they claim to hold so dear. For example, how many folks are out there calling for an end to banking as we know it today? I mean, some folks are all keen on Levitical laws regarding sexual codes, but some seem to ignore this one. Quoting Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 to 37, If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Take no usury or interest from him, but fear from God, that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend money for usury, nor lend him food at a profit. Essentially what I'm saying here is that Jesus came to fulfill all the laws. That this notion you hear in Christian circles, that the Old Testament still applies because Jesus only came to fulfill the civil and ceremonial laws, and all of the other laws are still in full effect, meaning we can decide that the laws on certain fabrics don't apply, and the law on eating foods don't apply, and the laws on days to worship don't apply, but we've got all these others that we, we think still does apply. That's completely inconsistent with Jesus' insistent that he came to fulfill all the law. This is echoed, of course, by Paul, Romans chapter 13, where he essentially cites Jesus's command that we love God and love our neighbor with saying that that sort of love is the fulfillment of the law, that no one who loves his neighbor is going to do things like steal, murder, commit adultery, bear false witness. So I'm hoping what I've established here is that a lot of the Christians that we've heard from the most loudly on these types of issues are liars. They bear false witness against what Jesus said. They fail miserably to recognize what he did on the cross and what it means. They've decided to hold on to things that both Jesus and Paul have told us we must let go. Paul words it so strongly in the book of Galatians. He essentially says that continuing to try to hang on to some of these laws and follow some of these laws makes you anti-Christ. Christ is of no use to you, is actually the words he uses, the exact words he uses in Galatians chapter 5. But the reason I'm so passionate about this issue, and I'm hitting it now, or perhaps I should say hitting it again, is the fact that a new lie has kind of been told to me just in the past couple of weeks. And it's this, why does it matter? Why does it matter if Christians lie about a few things here and there? if their intentions are good. 
specific instances include, well, why does it matter if you really shouldn't con- you know, mess up the meaning of birth control pills and abortion? Why does it matter? Because it's going to do the ultimate good of getting a law passed which bans abortion. And I, of course, made the argument that perhaps the use of birth control pill will prevent more abortions than any law banning it could ever hope to achieve. But that was just my own teleology. See, the problem here is that Christians have historically functioned in a very deontological way. If you think of it in terms of a sense of duty versus the ends make up the means, this ends versus means attitude has historically been a non-Christian attitude. In fact, it's historically been something that not just for decades, but for centuries, the church has railed against, that we have an obligation to stay within Christ and do things his way, and that stepping outside there, uh, deciding to hate a few of our neighbors because it'll do the ultimate good of scaring them into behaving the way we want. Well, it's profoundly anti-Christian. It is actually anti-Christ. It is reflecting the ideas. It is doing the will, if you will, of Satan himself. If we decide that we should agree that Satan is the father of all lies. So here we are. Does lying matter? Is it okay to lie if lying about what God really wants you to do when you go to the polling place does the good thing of electing the person that I think is the right man for the job? See, it becomes this notion of what I think and not so much what Jesus thinks. And you can always tell that you've slipped into a form of idolatry if you've come to believe that Jesus hates all the same people that you hate. If God condemns all of the same people that you condemn, you are not practicing a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. You are practicing idolatry. You have become anti-Christ. And what I intend to do the rest of the way is quote the kind of scripture that backs this up to make clear through passages in proper context exactly what what does the Bible have to say about lying? Specifically, what does Jesus Christ have to say about lying? And what do we do with Christians who no longer care what Jesus Christ thinks? Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. I want to get us started down this path with John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. It's one of my favorite passages, and it ties in with an outstanding cartoon that I saw, a a sketch drawing, just in the past couple of months, quoting, Jesus speaking, I am the real vine, and my father is the gardener. He breaks off every branch in me that does not bear fruit, and he prunes every branch that does bear fruit, so that it will be clean and bear more fruit. You have been made clean already. By the teaching I have given you, remain united to me, and I will remain united to you. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself. It can do so only if it remains in the vine. In the same way, you cannot bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever remains in me, and I in him, will bear much fruit. For you can do nothing without me. I saw a cartoon this year that had a uh, two-panel drawing. One was of a of a Christian. You know, looking upward, reading into this particular scripture passage and saying, Lord, without you, I am nothing. The second panel shows what so often happens in Christian circles today. Instead of it being about prayer, instead of it being about an individual's relationship with God, the Christian is pointing out to other people and saying, without him, you're nothing. That subtle difference where it may be logically true that if without Jesus, I am nothing, and without Jesus, everyone else is nothing, you could make that triangulation to say, okay, well, without Jesus, you're nothing. But that is not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching about your relationship with him. And when you use him as a weapon in this manner, when you bend and twist scripture to your political will in this way, you're probably becoming one of those branches that is going to get, at the very least, pruned, if not cut off completely. I quoted the Good News translation, and I'm going to do so throughout today. Part of that is because that's the Bible that I picked up to put these bookmarks in, but that was no accident. I've cited my deep disappointment 
in the New American Standard Bible, 1995, and actually kind of tentatively put on my Christmas list, if not for this year, maybe for next year, tracking down a 1971 edition, because I do believe that there is great power in a word-for-word translation. The good news is more of a idea-to-idea paraphrase style of translation that in some ways makes it a little bit like the New International Version, although one of the reasons that I'm going to cite it and perhaps even recommend it to somebody who truly needs what I would call a more modern English translation, where the King James Version is just going to put you completely off, is to say that this is a good way to go because it doesn't have this modern American perversion where people have taken certain passages of the Bible, which in their original true translation would speak to issues about women's rights and abortion and you know prayer in schools in manners that, you know again, modern American politically active Christians find offensive. So they've taken it upon themselves to rewrite the words of the supposedly infallible text to be more in line with their political views. The Good News translation does not make that mistake. And therefore, I'm going to quote it at length. Okay, so the idea here and the question facing us is what does Jesus think about lying? If in the minds of some Christians, Jesus teaches us to hate, then maybe it's okay that Jesus teaches us to lie too. Well, I asked those people to find me the chapter and verse. And so I'm going to offer the chapter and verse that is my response. Starting with John chapter 8, verses 31 through 58. So Jesus said to those who believed in him, If you obey my teachings, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are the descendants of Abraham, they answered. We have never been anybody's slaves. What do you mean then by saying, you will be free? Jesus said to them, I am telling you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave does not belong to a family permanently, but a son belongs there forever. If the son sets you free, then you will be really free. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are trying to kill me because you will not accept my teaching. I talk about what my father has shown me, but you do what your father has told you. They answered him, Our father is Abraham. If you really were Abraham's children, Jesus replied, you would do the same things he did. All I have ever done is to tell you the truth I heard from God, yet you are trying to kill me. Abraham did nothing like this. You were doing what your father did. God himself is the only father we have, they answered, and we are his true sons. Jesus said to them, if God were really your father, then you would love me because I came from God and now I am here. I did not come from my own authority. But he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to listen to my message. You are the children of your father, the devil, and you want to follow your father's desires. From the very beginning, he was a murderer and has never been on the side of truth, because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he is only doing what is natural to him, because he is a liar and the father of all lies. But I tell you the truth, and that is why you do not believe me. Which one of you can prove that I am guilty of sin? If I tell the truth, then why do you not believe me? He who comes from God listens to God's words. You, however, are not from God, and that is why you will not listen. They asked Jesus, Were we not right in saying that you were a Samaritan and have a demon in you? I have no demon, Jesus answered. I honor my father, but you dishonor me. I am not seeking honor for myself, but there is one who is seeking it, and who judges in my favor. I am telling you the truth. Whoever obeys my teaching will never die. They said to him, Now we know for sure that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets died. Yet you say that whoever obeys your teaching will never die. Our father Abraham died. You do not claim to be greater than Abraham, do you? Also the prophets also died. Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, If I were to honor myself, that honor would be worth nothing. The one who honors me is my father, the very one you say is your God. You have never known him, but I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see the time of my coming. He saw it, and he was glad. They said to him, You are not even fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? I am telling you the truth, Jesus replied. Before Abraham was born, I am. That is Jesus himself quoting the phrase that I'm using as the title for this inappropriate conversation. The father of lies. 
the devil, is the father of lies. Those who tell lies and believe that they can somehow accomplish some good from it are seeking only after themselves. They're being deceived by the devil. They're becoming the devil's tool. And therefore, Jesus is not in them. They're not speaking on behalf of Christ. They're not representing the true gospel the way that letter writer was responding to that blogger. They couldn't be more wrong. But for those who love the Old Testament and prefer only to look there for, for the true laws that they should follow, let me just drop a couple of references and dispense with the idea that somehow Jesus is at odds with Old Testament scripture. Psalm 62, verses 1 through 4, referring to those who take pleasure in lies. I will wait patiently for God to save me. I depend on him alone. He alone protects and saves me. He is my defender, and I shall never be defeated. How much longer will all of you attack a man who is no stronger than a broken down fence? You only want to bring him down from his place of honor. You take pleasure in lies. You speak words of blessing, but in your heart you curse him. I personally feel comfortable saying that all of this love the sinner, hate the sin talk is nothing more than people who try to speak words of blessing, but in their heart are cursing those that they say they love. Well, what about the prophets? Certainly in conservative evangelical circles, Jeremiah is viewed as a hero. It's hard to have a conversation about an issue like abortion without Jeremiah's name coming up. Well, here's Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. Jeremiah speaking. The Lord sent me to the gate of the temple, where the people of Judah went in to worship. He told me to stand there and announce what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, had to say to them. Quote, Change the way you are living and the things you are doing, and I will let you go on living here. Stop believing those deceitful words. We are safe. This is the Lord's temple. This is the Lord's temple. This is the Lord's temple. Change the way you are living and stop doing the things you are doing. Be fair in your treatment of one another. Stop taking advantage of aliens, orphans, and widows. Stop killing innocent people in this land. Stop worshiping other gods, for that will destroy you. If you change, I will let you go on living here in the land which I gave your ancestors as a permanent possession. Look, you put your trust in deceitful words. You steal, murder, commit adultery, tell lies under oath, offer sacrifices to Baal, and worship gods that you had not known before. You do these things I hate, and then you come and stand in my presence, in my own temple, and say, we are safe. Do you think that my temple is a hiding place for robbers? I have seen what you are doing. Go to Shiloh, the first place where I chose to be worshipped, and see what I did to it because of the sins of my people Israel. You have committed all these sins, and even though I spoke to you over and over and over again, you refused to listen. You would not answer when I called you. And so, what I did to Shiloh, I will do to this temple of mine, in which you trust, here in this place that I gave to your ancestors and you. I will do the same thing that I did to Shiloh. I will drive you out of my sight as I drove out your relatives, the people of Israel. I, the Lord, have spoken. I suppose the natural thing at this point would be for modern politically active Christians to attach themselves to that list of things that, that God was speaking about through Jeremiah. What are the sins we need to avoid at all costs? And you know what? If you line up this list with the hierarchy of things that modern evangelicals are worried about, you're going to find a couple of really interesting things missing. There are people which we hear so much talk from, or at least we used to, from the Jerry Falwells of the world, about things that would make God angry enough to knock down buildings in New York City or you know, send an earthquake or a flood. But he starts the list with putting your trust in deceitful words. Yes, the Lord is upset about stealing and murder and adultery, but he's also upset about telling lies under oath and making an idol of anything that is not him. And that includes the Bible itself. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. 
I don't believe I'll ever understand the people who have an early church mentality. This notion of Christianity and the primitivism of both Christianity and, frankly, the U.S. Constitution. Losing sight of what happens when you lie and when you urge others to lie. In Acts chapter 5, we get a point of view from Peter in particular about the early church and what the Holy Spirit was doing at that time to people who told lies. Chapter 5 in the Acts of the Apostles, verses 1 through 11. But there was a man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property that belonged to them. But with his wife's agreement, he kept part of that money for himself and turned the rest over to the apostles. Peter said to him, Ananias, why did you let Satan take control of you and make you lie to the Holy Spirit by keeping part of the money you received for the property? Before you sold the property, it belonged to you, and after you sold it, the money was yours. Why then did you decide to do such a thing? You have not lied to men. You have lied to God. As soon as Ananias heard this, he fell down dead, and all who heard about it were terrified. The young men came in, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife, not knowing what had happened, came in. Peter asked her, Tell me, was this the full amount that you and your husband received for your property? Yes, she answered, the full amount. So Peter said to her, Why did you and your husband decide to put the Lord's Spirit to the test? The men who buried your husband are at the door right now, and they will carry you out too. At once she fell at his feet and died. The young men came in and saw that she was dead. So they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. The whole church and all others who heard of this were terrified. Now, on one level, the issue in the book of Acts is that the church was involved in a great deal of property sharing. I can understand if someone looked at that, pointed to these passages, especially in Acts chapters 4 and 5, and said that the apostles were operating on a socialist system. I'm not here to have that conversation. I don't think it's necessary to make that assumption. Even if we assume that the economy in the early church functioned exactly like our capitalistic economy does today, which in point of fact isn't true, but if we assumed that, the lie here, as Peter points out, is not that money from this property was sold and not given to the church. The lie was that people had said they were tithing when they weren't. They said they gave all of it when they only gave part of it. And presumably, had they been honest and upfront about how they'd managed that transaction, what they'd done with the proceeds of that sale, there wouldn't have been trouble. I think the main thing for the church to understand is that we are playing with fire as a church if we as a church tell these kinds of lies. The early church viewed it as a death penalty offense, not because anybody in the church was going to be executing a violent judgment against people, but because it was a widely held view that God himself would take action. Of course, I started this inappropriate conversation with a reference to things Jesus said and taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and that if we really want to suggest that Jesus has sort of a lax attitude about lying, or for that matter, a lax attitude about how we should treat each other, how we should take care of the poor, whether or not we should take revenge, well, that's you know, sort of a different animal. For a member of the American Family Association to suggest, uh, and lie about it later, but to suggest that some sort of revenge or judgment should be cast against Tim Tebow, well, you almost, you almost have to measure that against what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. This is kind of smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to refer to verses 33 to 48. You have also heard that people were told in the past, do not break your promise, but do what you have vowed to the Lord to do. But now I tell you, do not use any vow when you make a promise. Do not swear by heaven, because it is God's throne, nor by earth, because it is the resting place for his feet, nor by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not even swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. Just say yes or no. Anything else you say comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But now I tell you, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him slap your left cheek too. And if someone takes you to court to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if any one of the occupying troops forces forces you to carry your, his pack for a mile, carry it two miles. When someone asks you to do something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something, lend it to him. You have heard that it was said, love your friends and hate your enemies. 
But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may become sons of your father in heaven. For he makes the sun to shine on the bad and the good people alike and gives rain to those who do good and to those who do evil. Why should God reward you if you love only the people who love you? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you speak only to your friends, have you done anything out of the ordinary? Even the pagans do that. You must be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. There is not a single moment in this passage from the Sermon on the Mount where it can be misconstrued that Jesus somehow tells us that we need to lie, that we need to hate, that we need to strike a vengeful blow against our enemies. Everyone who preaches that is a liar. Everyone who preaches that is following the father of all lies. I know that the Sermon on the Mount also speaks to some of the economic conflicts in our society, places where that line between conservative and liberal intersects with Christianity in a way that I think has led a lot of people to believe that Christianity teaches things that it truly doesn't. I ignored it in the Sermon on the Mount, but let me go there here. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. Once again, you know, Jesus offering words of preaching. As Jesus was starting on his way again, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not accuse anyone falsely. Do not cheat. Respect your father and mother. Teacher, the man said, ever since I was young, I have obeyed all these commandments. Jesus looked straight at him with love and said, you need only one thing. Go and sell all you have and give the money to the poor and you will have riches in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the man heard this, gloom spread over his face, and he went away sad because he was very rich. Jesus looked around at his disciples and said to them, How hard it will be for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were shocked at these words, but Jesus went on to say, My children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is much harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. At this, the disciples were completely amazed and asked one another, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked straight at them and answered, This is impossible for man, but not for God. Everything is possible for God. Look, we have left everything and followed you. Yes, Jesus said to them. And I tell you that anyone who leaves the home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will receive much more in this present age. He will receive a hundred times more houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and persecutions as well. And in the age to come, he will receive eternal life. But many who are now first will be last, and many who are now last will be first. This is the economic worldview of Jesus Christ expressed in Mark's Gospel, and frankly, parallel passages throughout the Synoptic Gospels. You can find this same thinking expressed in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 30, and Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. All again, the words of Jesus. I want to end what I'm hoping is a comprehensive view of what the Bible says, and truthfully what Jesus says about the question of lying, of honesty, of integrity, of truth. And I'm going to end it with one more passage from Matthew's gospel and a parallel reference to Isaiah. The Matthew passages, chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. And in here, it quotes Isaiah, chapter 29, verses 13 and 14. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came from Jerusalem to Jesus and asked him, Why is it that your disciples disobey the teaching handed down by our ancestors? They don't wash their hands in the proper way before they eat. Jesus answered, And why do you disobey God's command and follow your own teaching? For God said, Respect your father and your mother, and whoever curses his father or mother is to be put to death. But you teach that if a person has something he could use to help his father or mother, but says, This belongs to God, he does not need to honor his father and mother. In this way, you disregard God's command in order to follow your own teaching. <laughs> you hypocrites! How right Isaiah was when he prophesied about you, these people, 
says God. Honor me with their words, but their heart is really far away from me. It is of no use to them to worship me, because they teach man-made rules as though they were my laws. Then Jesus called a crowd to him and said to them, Listen and understand. It is not what goes into a person's mouth that makes him ritually unclean. Rather, what comes out of it makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees had their feelings hurt by what you said? Jesus answered, Every plant which my Father in heaven did not plant will be pulled up. Don't worry about them. They are blind leaders of the blind. And when one blind man leads another, both fall into a ditch. Peter spoke up. Explain the saying to us. Jesus said to them, You are still no more intelligent than the others. Don't you understand? Anything that goes into a person's mouth goes into his stomach and then out of his body. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these are the things that make a person ritually unclean. For from his heart come the evil ideas which lead him to kill, commit adultery, and do other immoral things to rob, lie, slander others. These are the things that make a person unclean. But to eat without washing your hands, as they say you should, well, that doesn't make a person unclean. Requoting Isaiah, The Lord said, These people claim to worship me, but their words are meaningless, and their hearts are somewhere else. Their religion is nothing but human rules and traditions, which they have simply memorized. So I will startle them with one unexpected blow after another. Those who are wise will turn out to be fools, and all their cleverness will be useless. You don't spend all those years playing Dungeons and Dragons and not learn a little something about courage. (laughs) It's awesome. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly, the podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. The lesson here is clear, and I hope it won't feel like a Sunday school lesson, but Jesus offers no quarter for those people who are obsessed with rules, who are willing to bend rules or tell lies or deceive or cover their tracks or make themselves look better than they are or literally lord themselves over others by making sure that their rights are more equal than the rights of anyone else. It is exactly these types of things which Jesus has denounced. And unfortunately, far too often today, this is what we hear from people in the church on political issues. If there is one thing I would like to see come out of this particular Lenten season, that over the course of self-analysis and self-awareness and reading scriptures like this and taking them to heart, I would like to see a lot of Christians, perhaps Christianity as a whole, come to the conclusion that the time for their obsession with a man-made emphasis on rules, the time for their belief that somehow everything Jesus did is unimportant because the Old Testament is still the final arbiter of our relationship with God, that these people would take these things to the cross, give them up for Lent, and come out on the other side with a heart that is more ritually clean than the, well, the crap we've been hearing. If I told you that I enjoyed movies like Memento and The Prestige and and even other films like Inception, you might naturally conclude that a good different drummer for me would be Christopher Nolan. And it's not that I don't appreciate the work of this film director, but instead I'm going to cite his younger brother, Jonathan Nolan, and I'm going to cite him for, with the exception of Inception, a lot of the same reasons. Starting with a short bio from a short different drummer segment, Nolan, Jonathan Nolan, was born in London, England to an English father and an American mother, and he was raised in the Chicago area. 
He attended a university in Illinois and later graduated from Georgetown University in D.C. And while he was there, he pursued writing interests and was published. Jonathan Nolan is the idea behind movies like Memento. Uh, he's actually the writer of the short story, Memento Mori, that was used by his brother to craft the film Memento. Wikipedia says that even though Jonathan didn't get particular screenwriting credit for the film, and the film is not an original screenplay, it's adapted from his short story. Both brothers shared a nomination for the Oscar that year for original screenplay, because the movie was released before the story was published. Jonathan also collaborated with his brother on screenplays for The Prestige, The Dark Knight, the Dark Knight Rises. But I really wanted to cite Nolan today for two reasons. First, Memento the short story, which was really one of the more interesting short story concepts, driving a movie which frankly introduced most of us to Christopher Nolan's work. But I also want to cite Jonathan for being the mind, truly the writer and producer, behind the new TV series, Person of Interest. It only debuted about a year and a half ago, and it's made an impression on me. You are being watched. The government has a secret system, a machine that spies on you every hour of every day. I know because I built it. I designed the machine to detect acts of terror, but it sees everything. Violent crimes involving ordinary people, people like you. Crimes the government considered irrelevant. They wouldn't act, so I decided I would. But I needed a partner. Someone with the skills to intervene. Hunted by the authorities. We work in secret. You'll never find us. But victim or perpetrator, if your number's up, we'll find you. As a young kid in the early 70s, I was a big fan of a short-lived TV series called Search. It was based on a made-for-TV movie called Probe, the pilot for the show. And it featured the concept of a sort of a high-tech, independent, private investigation agency where Burgess Meredith worked at the corporate office or the, the home base. Really, a situation that looked a lot more like the bridge of the enterprise with a lot of computers and, at the time, high-tech monitoring equipment. He had the ability to speak into the ear of field detectives who were out doing undercover work and, through the use of cameras and other gadgets, was able to see what they were seeing sort of a cross between Mission Impossible, in a certain way, and a typical sort of crime drama. And one of the things that I think really connects with me about the new TV series Person of Interest are those elements, except in this case, boiled down to just two individuals, instead of a team of multiple private detectives and a large office leading the way. The technology is such now with the internet that it's almost reasonable to assume that one individual with incredible computer skills could access a lot of information and even do a lot of hacking and provide you know information into the earpiece or into the cell phone of sort of a field agent. And that field agent, instead of being a traditional private detective type, might be a, somebody with some special forces training, somebody with an almost superhuman ability to function against uh, multiple odds, somebody who might go into a situation surrounded by people uh, from a mob hitman perspective and not feel at all underconfident about his ability as one person to stand up to a group of four or five. So you've got what I would consider to be a science fiction element in play in person of interest that doesn't look and feel necessarily like science fiction. In a lot of ways, it feels like a police procedural. The twist is that in person of interest, they're actually trying to prevent crimes before they start. And they're not hired by individuals who are looking for help. They are aware of the need in ways that often, or most often, the individual is not. They're trying to help people who don't know they're about to be a victim. They're about to intercede on people who are being caught in a criminal enterprise, either without their knowledge, or who are about to you know, engage in serious criminal behavior, thinking no one knows. The conceit is that in a post-9-11 world, the government has come up with a system, what they call in the show a machine, they can identify terror threats based on an interpretation of all sorts of surveillance data. Literally, an electronic computer, a super, super, super computer, reading every email, seeing every text message, looking at every news account, um, following surveillance cameras, able to look at every transaction, every electronic data interface of any sort, and see the patterns, sort of know when someone's about to, when, well, when someone's been paid for a hit. 
maybe even know who the hitman's victim is going to be, and shooting the social security number to this team of two so that they have an opportunity to intervene. And the idea is that the government built or at least consigned for this product so that this machine could help stop terror threats. But the government disregards any threat that doesn't involve terrorism so that if it's not a truly national security issue, those numbers get ignored. And the idea is that the, uh, the philanthropic billionaire who's the mind behind this team of mind and body gets those social security numbers and sends the operative out to prevent the crime. Person of interest doesn't have any sort of natural relationship to this concept of the father of lies. Although I do like the idea that there's these truths that we're not interested in. There's this least of these that in the story of this particular TV series gets completely ignored. We're only interested in stopping, you know, a certain kind of threat, you know, whether it's a terror cell or whether it's, you know, some sort of international conspiracy. But these guys step up to say, no, huh? They feel called to go in to the places where no one else either can, because, again, there hasn't been a crime yet, so the police have a limited ability to intercede, or won't, because of the nature of who the victims are. It's this aspect where I look at the concept of Christians who lie, and Christians who have the audacity to say, well, why does it matter that I've told a lie? And go back to what are they lying about? And far too often, what's happened here is that these lies are related to the least of these issues where people have decided that because the person that is being disenfranchised is homosexual, it doesn't matter because it's a woman seeking abortion. She doesn't matter because it's, you know, somebody who is of a minority religious view or an immigrant to this country. They don't matter. Jesus has a different point of view. And although I would not describe person of interest as a religious show by any stretch of the imagination, I find comfort in the fact that the lead and the, the lead characters in this TV series also share that different view about the value of people who are viewed as outcast. Normally, this is where I would do a fairly standard outro, but there's been a couple of wrinkles that I think I want to cover. First, where things are normal and functioning as they always have. Stitcher. Inappropriate Conversations is on Stitcher. You can listen to the show on your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and other devices using Stitcher. Stitcher is smart radio for your phone, and you can find it in the App Store or at stitcher.com. So no changes there. There's also no changes at the website, www.inappropriateconversations.org. Show notes are there. Comments are enabled. But the email address, IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com, I'm not 100% sure where we stand there. There's been an announcement by Microsoft that Hotmail is going to be phased out and that those who use Hotmail will be moved over to Outlook. What I don't know is whether the E address uh, for IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com will have to change. If it has to change, I'm not 100% sure that I'll remain with Hotmail or Outlook. This may spur me to make a complete change. I started with Hotmail, as a matter of fact, because I wasn't sure what the lifespan of inappropriate conversations would be, and I didn't mind being on an email system that I viewed as somewhat disposable. But it is possible that now Microsoft has also viewed Hotmail as disposable, and that could change the way people reach me. It may be enough to say for now that you can follow me on Twitter, at IC underscore Greg, and if anything goes wrong with Hotmail, if you get a bounce back to an email sent to IC underscore Greg at Hotmail dot com, then rest assured that uh, any messages on Twitter at IC underscore Greg will be received. I know that's an unusual way to end the show, but it's also an unusual time where there's changes that are underway. I've passed the threshold of show number 113, and I've got more coming my way. It's been a while since I put out a Next on Inappropriate Conversations blurb on the website. I may consider doing that because I'm going to make this transition with the way email is. I may change up microphones. I may even change my desk chair in the next few days. That's likely to give me a little delay. So if I take a week or so off, don't be surprised. But if you want to stay in contact with the show, the Facebook page, Twitter, the website, all up and running. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.